Good afternoon. This is Chris Newbold, uh, guest hosting today for the Alps in Brief podcast. And I'm here in our offices in Missoula, Montana, uh, with uh, attorney and, uh, and, and advocate for well-being, uh, Brian Cuban, who's in here from, uh, from the Dallas area. Uh, just spoke at our Alps Bar Leaders Retreat, and uh, we thought this would be a great opportunity for us uh, to have a, we have a similar passion in, in terms of seeing our profession uh, improve on, on the well-being side. And so I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to you know, just kind of have a, a conversation about where the profession's at, where do we need to go. And, and you know, Brian, you're obviously out on the, uh, in the, uh, on the speakers network kind of talking about this particular issue, your personal experience and so forth. I, you know, I think I, I'd like to start with just you kind of putting into your, your own frame of reference, what is the state of the profession right now when it comes to attorney well-being? It's a state that is a lot better than it was a few years ago. We have much more awareness. We have many more engaged professionals from the bottom up. Uh, the lawyers, the bar professionals, the state, the local bar professionals, the state bar professionals. And we have awareness in big law. We have awareness within the boutique and the sole practitioner. There are areas that we can certainly do better and we can certainly be more impactful, but we are definitely light years ahead of we were just three years ago. Mm -hmm. And what do you think's driven that improvement in such a short period of time? I think you have to give a lot of the credit to the ABA and the Betty Ford Hazleton report. And that would also be Patrick Krill, who authored that report mm -hmm. in bringing the issue to the forefront with the staggering statistics, because I think that was a catalyst in really changing the conversation. Mm. Uh, whatever people think of the ABA, uh, you have different opinions, but you can't deny that that report was a seminal moment. Mm -hmm. And why do you think that the issue right now is capturing a lot of attention in the legal community, in, in legal circles? Well, because of that report and because of the cumulative awareness, now we are looking around us and actually noticing what's going on. We may have been aware of what's going on. We may have seen what's going on. When someone dies by suicide, we, we, we are aware of it and we grieve it. But we are now much better in taking a look at that and deciding where things could have been done differently. Mm -hmm. And three years ago, four years ago, it was more about just grieving and handing out and the issue of suicide and handing out the 1-800 hotlines, now we are moving beyond that and really look at how we can make systemic changes to at least lessen the odds of those things occurring. Mm -hmm. And you, you talk a lot about, you know, kind of the impact that one lawyer can have on another lawyer, right? And, and, and the responsibility that we have to not be kind of casual observers in this. Talk about that a little bit more as it relates to, you know, where how we look to engineer a culture shift in the profession and how every lawyer can make a difference one by one. Sure, I talk a lot about not minding your own business. We have to create a culture where we are comfortable or even if we're not comfortable, let me step back from that because it's not comfortable. It's okay to be uncomfortable not minding your own business. That's a human emotion. But we have to be we have to get comfortable understanding that for what it is and taking that step anyways. When we see someone struggling, when we 
think we might be able to, or we were wondering, you just don't know, is there a drinking problem? Is there a mental health struggle? Maybe the person just having a bad day. To be able to not mind our own business, for one moment, step outside of our struggles, step outside of our busy day, our billing, the things we have going on, and say, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. How can I, are you doing okay? Do you know that if you're not, you can you can come to me and we'll, we can talk. Mm-hmm. That doesn't require anything but empathy. Mm-hmm. And every lawyer, every person has that ability. But isn't it, is that a tough conversation for an associate to have with a partner? Absolutely, and we have to uh, we have to follow protocols. Okay, yeah. uh, law firms need to establish protocols for when people are struggling. That is not realistic to expect an associate to confront a partner. Mm-hmm. Okay, but big law all have EAPs, mm-hmm. right? So there's that. We all have lawyers assistance programs. Do you know, as an associate, you can call lawyers assistance program, and you can. Let someone know what's going on and they're not going to out you. I know that is a tough pill to swallow and I know you don't believe that, but you can make that call. You do not have to identify yourself in any lawyer's assistance program in this country and you can say, I'm in this firm and I think this guy is struggling. Mm -hmm. And they will take it from there. Mm -hmm. So you can do that. Within big law, and we can talk about big law and then move on to something go down, that don't go down. Within big law, it's important to establish protocols that are non-judgmental, where everyone has a path. Everyone in the firm has a non-judgmental path, a path that they feel safe voicing their concern if they see someone they think is struggling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I can't tell them what that path is, but there should be multiple paths based on where someone is in the chain. Mm-hmm. Right down to the clerk. Mm-hmm. Talk about your opinions on, you know, the, there's an increasing body of work out there that says that the economics of well-being are conducive to, to a stronger bottom line, right? And as we think about talent acquisition, talent retention, I know you work a lot in kind of big law firms, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, there, I think there's a really interesting play on the horizon for those who lead our profession from a, from a big law perspective uh, to be thinking about a commitment to this issue that could translate economically for the firm. Talk about that a little bit. Well, absolutely. And I think, I doubt there are any managing partners, senior partners, firm CEOs for the real big ones that are not aware of that issue. Yeah. It is the messaging is consistent out just in general in society about the impact of addiction and mental health issues on the workplace and the economic cost. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the challenge becomes how do we translate that into risk management? And I think they are starting to do that. That is not what I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm a storyteller, I'm not a risk manager. But I think we are starting to see an industry and people who do that to go into a firm and say, this is how we translate this into risk management to increase your increase value to you. Mm-hmm. Save you money, that saves the client money. Because on the most basic level, and we talked about the Peter Principle of Recovery, right? How your level of competence keeps decreasing and you keep trying to adjust your mindset to stay within that, to tell yourself you're at a high level when you're struggling. That is steal, that can be, in a general sense, stealing money from a client. Mm-hmm. Because you are not effectively representing the client 
that is affecting the firm's bottom line. And that is the most basic level. When a lawyer is struggling and not functioning in effect and not functioning at the non-struggling level, he may not even or she may not even understand what that level is mm-hmm. because they've been in the middle of it lacking self-awareness for so long. That is affecting the firm's bottom line. Mm-hmm. That can affect client retention because there are lawyers out there who are not struggling and they'll be, everyone's trying to get the business, right? So you have to maximize, the, you have to minimize the risk by putting lawyers in a, in a position to succeed and to hit the top level of competence and move beyond that if possible. Mm-hmm. Keep raising that level. And it's hard to do that when someone's struggling with addiction, problem drinking, depression, and I see lawyers all the time that talk about, well, I'm struggling with depression, but I was killing it, doing this, and I can't judge that. I don't know their situation. But I can say anecdotally, and what I see in the data, that I don't see how a person can look at the big picture, step back and say, I was going through all that and giving a dollar for a dollar. Mm-hmm. So I think all firms are aware of that, yeah. and I think that is achieved through a risk management model. Yeah, it's gonna, again, it's going to be interesting to as big law tries to recruit talent out of law schools, how much how much top talented students are actually looking for a wellness play in terms of the life balance, life work balance that I think yeah. generationally I think is 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 becoming that, more. That's prominent. a good question. I forget what the study was. Uh, what was it? Was it AMLAW? Did the AMLAW survey just come out? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was, and I couldn't find it. And I think it may have been assumed in uh, in one of the questions. But I reached out to Patrick Krill, who's the risk management. He does a lot of the risk management stuff, and, and who wrote and who authored the ABA Buddy Ford study, and, and asked him if he knew if we are surveying firms on well-being, if that is part of the survey. And and he, I don't know that he had. I'll have to look and see if he responded or he had an answer. But I think that may be not so much as a uh, conscious play, mm-hmm. but as a lifestyle play. It's just part of an overall lifestyle. You're looking at the overall lifestyle. Can we say that someone's going to say, what's their drinking culture? I'm not going there. There's no way to know that. Mm-hmm. But in the overall lifestyle play, I think lifestyle and wellness will become major factors Mm -hmm. as millennials and Generation Z who have different priorities on what they want their life to look at as lawyers and as human beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, talk talk more about, you know, it's an interesting time in our profession given the fact that we have four separate generations all operating at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, does, you know, but there are also studies out there, particularly those that have been done within the law schools that say, you know, some of these behaviors and substance abuse and so forth are starting earlier, sure, right, and are becoming uh, more, more more prevalent for those who have been in practice, particularly in private practice, for less than ten years. As you think about that dynamic and, and millennials and and so forth, you know that, that's soon going to be the largest chunk of lawyers in the profession. And and as you think about the generational aspects of well being, what's your take on that? I think different gener. I think millennials definitely have a different vision of what wellness looks like than I'm a baby boomer mm-hmm. than baby boomers. I come from a, my, my lawyer's culture was a drinking culture. And I think when we look at things like the sober, uh, the sober curious movement, mm-hmm. 
And what the sober curious movement is, is not looking at drinking in terms of whether someone is a problem drinker, is an alcoholic, but what it looks like as a lifestyle and as part of a healthy lifestyle and whether you want it to be part of a healthy lifestyle without being judged on whether you're abstinent or not abstinent and what that means to you, whether you're an alcoholic or you're not an alcoholic. I think millennials and Generation Z are going to look at this differently in terms of just, I want to do the things that make me feel good and that may not involve drinking. And I don't want to be judged for that. I don't want to have to explain myself. And I think that is going to be a much easier transition and a much easier conversation than it is for my generation. Mm -hmm. Because it's beginning. It is beginning. The sober curious movement is out there. We have bars within New York, not so darn any in Dallas and Austin. And you see a lot of the progressive towns where you have bars, they just serve mocktails and they result, they revolve the fun around other things besides getting drunk. You go out and you're drinking fake pina coladas without alcohol and they revolve everything around those, around the mocktails. Mm-hmm. The mocktail generation, <laughs> they, they may be that. That's an interesting one. The, how, so if you had to put, if you had to assess right now well-being in the legal profession, one being it's, a, it's at an all-time low, 10 being... You know, I, I think lawyers are both healthy, happy, engaged. Where would you put that on the spectrum? Uh, I would put it we're at a three or four. Okay. Three or four. So and that's great. And that's great. For up, lot for of, lot of room for improvement. And that's uh, four is opportunity, right? Yeah. Four yep. is opportunity, yes. And one of the biggest challenges I think we have, and if you look at big law, we and with the ABA, and this isn't a criticism of the ABA at all. They're, I think with the Wellness Task Force and everything, they have laid out the groundwork for all levels to participate, all stakeholders, solo, mm-hmm. medium, boutique, the bar associations, all the way up to big law, corporate. I think they are laying out uh, that groundwork, but I think we are, when we get further down into the stakeholders, the solo, uh, practitioners, the small firm, we have a lot more work to do. And I think in that chunk is where we have the most improvement to do in our messaging and the most opportunity. Because we have other challenges when we get down there. If you work at Big Law, you have health insurance. And I knew Big Law lawyers who have health insurance and still can't find a reasonable psychiatrist or therapist. They've complained to me about it. Mm-hmm. We have this health insurance crisis on so many different levels. And we, in big law, within this spectrum, you have privilege. You have, you have health insurance privilege because you're going to have it. And you're going to have the EAP. And you're going to have this. And you're going to have that. I don't know what the stats are, but I'll, I know anecdotally that a lot of solos cannot afford health insurance. Yeah. So when you can't afford health insurance, what are your options? You're going to 12-step? You are going to county. Mm-hmm. I've lawyered, I want to go to county and get uh, free treatment. That's very shameful, right? If you even have that option uh, as a reasonable option in your, in your uh, city. Mm-hmm. A lot of cities have terrible county uh, free health, health services. And so we have that stigma of the solo practitioner and the medium. I don't have health insurance. I'm, not, I'm a lawyer. I'm not taking advantage of free, right? That's, that's, I can, so they don't tell anyone. It's shameful. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and it's a. So how do we solve that? I mean, obviously, you know, you know, in our book of business with Alps, I mean, we specialize in small firms and solo mm-hmm. practitioners, and sixty-five percent of the policies that we issue are to solos, and those, 
they're generally a higher malpractice risk, right? Because they don't have a support network around them. You can't stop into Brian's office and say, hey, let's have a conversation about this particular case. You have to build networks. You have to build connections in very different Absolutely. ways, which makes it, I think, a much more and challenging. And it does. And it's a challenge where uh, you're struggling. You're, you're, I mean, it's going to be dependent on this particular situation, but you're making what would be in a vacuum decent money. You have a family. You can barely, after everything, then you can barely support your family. And then, and you can correct, you can, you're more able to speak to this. You have a deductible that you can't meet anyways, even though you have health insurance. Yeah. So that's this almost as being uninsured. Yeah. So we have all of those issues. And I don't know what the solution is that, but that is one of the things that is a huge barrier to wellness and, uh, within, uh, within the profession, mm-hmm. health insurance, mm-hmm. and the ability to pay for getting well, the ability to find people to get us well. We are becoming a cash-only society in terms of wellness. Mm-hmm. Uh, try, I consider myself uh, very lucky because I, I have a psychiatrist I've been seeing for 15 years and he treats. And I have one of the few treating psychiatrists out there, right, with his therapy. But uh, we, we also have the ghost networks that you may be familiar with, and I'm getting off on tangents, but where you can't, even if you have health insurance, you can't find a treatment provider. Yeah, yeah. Because they don't take insurance. Mm-hmm. So where do we go, you know, again, where, a lot of good activity now happening, right? You got, you got Pledge, you got some state task forces going, got a lot of discussion, right? We're, I think, um, societally, societally, we're seeing more vulnerability to talk sure. about these issues, right? You know, whether it's Hollywood stars or sports stars or you know, there's just more sure. discussion, which I think is healthy. Um, you know, if we're a three or four right now, how do we get to a six or seven? How do we, what, what's, how do we start to move the needle? Culture shifts in any society or... or it's or, one person or at a time. It's one person at a time. If you're talking, there's no magic pill to culture shift. We talked about this. Uh, it is one person at a time. It is one bar association at a time. Yeah. It is one law firm at a time. And you hope, you hope that the uh, Malcolm Gladwell theories uh, click in and you hit a tipping point, mm-hmm. right? But it is much more, again, it is much more on different levels societal. If I can't afford treatment, what's the difference, what the path is? Mm-hmm. If I can't get there, why should I tell anyone if I can't afford to get there? In Texas, we have a fund where if you go to them, it's a, uh, it's, it, a lawyer can get treatment. And it's a, and it, I believe it's an endowed fund that uh, privately, and maybe someone will correct me on this when they listen to it, but we have to find different ways to, it's more than just laying the path. We have, people have to be able to walk on it. Mm-hmm. And if you can't afford to, get the help other than 12-step, and 12-step is great. Uh, Smart recovery is great. Refuge recovery is great. They're all, but they're all mutual aid. Mutual aid is not treatment. Mm -hmm. Mutual aid is maintaining connection, which is important. If you can't afford the treatment and you have no way through that path, that's a huge problem that goes beyond the legal profession. So when we talk about the legal profession, what we can do, I think we have to have a more societal view of that. How do we correct that? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's an interconnectedness to a lot there, of different You can't issues. sever this out. Yeah. You can't sever out health insurance. You can't sever health insurance ex- accessibility from all the other issues within the profession. Yeah, yeah. Because most of the profession is, is solo yeah. and, and small. How are you? And even even on a tangent, you know, one of the, one of the reasons I got involved in the well-being movement was I feel like there's a gap in in expectations for what people think practicing law will be like, and ultimately what they find that it's going to be like. Whether that happens in law school, or whether that happens because of law school debt, that you know, again, to be a good lawyer, to be one has to be a healthy lawyer. And more and more, people are finding themselves boxed into a spot That's right. where they're actually doing something that they're not finding pr- professional satisfaction in, which is then causing, you know, can cause other than things to kind of spin off from there. I agree. I agree. And every lawyer is a story. Okay? Every lawyer is more than just the person under stress. Every mm-hmm. lawyer brings their entire history of trauma, of however they grew up, mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. They bring it all through the door of that firm. They bring it all to the courthouse. So whatever that stress is may not just be the product of what's going on at that moment, the case, fulfilled expectations, unfulfilled expectations. It may be the product of a life story that has shaped someone that made them more susceptible to those issues. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does. So we have to address the story and not just the moment that the lawyer is in. Yeah, yeah. Anything else that you want to kind of relay as we you talk to our policyholders and other interested listeners about you know just kind of the current state of attorney well-being? If we want to change the paradigm of attorney well-being, for me personally, I think the most powerful tool is continue to encourage people to tell their stories. Keep telling the stories. Everyone identifies with aspects of other people's lives. There's going to be something they identify with. The connection. Stories bring connection. Keep bringing people in to tell stories. Keep, just encourage that. And I think through the power of storytelling, we will start to see more and more people tell their stories. And then they'll tell their stories. Mm-hmm. And I think that is how. That, that reduces stigma. That, that reduces and I, and I think vulnerability. That's right. that increases I, vulnerability. I think as we reduce stigma, we will better empower lawyers to seek recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Brian, thank you. Thank you. We appreciate uh, your time and we appreciate your perspectives and obviously you're doing wonderful work in the storytelling side of the, of the ledger because it's important that, uh, you know, through, through the experiences of you and, and tell them your personal right. story that it's, and, and it makes think, a difference. And I think law firms need to realize, and I think big firms are starting to do this, is creating a wellness program has different levels. There's storytelling. There is risk management. Mm-hmm. There is... Scientific study. Si- yes, and there right. is uh, the pure wellness aspect. How do we reduce stress? Yeah. How do we become happier? What can we do to allow our lawyers within the framework of our representation of clients to feel better about themselves and what they do? Law firms are in a business. This is a business... And they are not yogis, mm-hmm. right? 
We have to all we have to be realistic. Law firms are there to represent clients at the highest level possible. So what what holes do we not need to fill to make that happen? Because that is what we do. Mm-hmm. We represent clients. And so we have to fill all these different gaps. The storytelling gap, the risk management gap, the wellness gap. Got it. Well, again, thank you so much. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. As you know, Alps is uh, committed and uh, committed to being a leader in, uh, in the well-being um, issues of the day affecting the legal profession. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any other ideas uh, for topics on the well-being, uh, please let us know. Thank you.